Welcome to Planet Sleep. I'm your host, Josh. And tonight, we're back for another journey to one of the most beautiful and mystical places on the entire planet. Tonight, we'll be traveling all the way to South America, up into the mountains, to see the once thriving city of Machu Picchu. Before we go, I wanted to remind you that Planet Sleep is available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We also are available on YouTube. If you're looking for a video version of the show, make sure you're subscribed to our YouTube channel and following us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. Let's sit back or lie down, close your eyes, or open your eyes and watch the beautiful scenes unfold before you. Take a few deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth, and just breathe for a few moments. You're going to need your strength for the long journey ahead. Now that you're relaxed, let the journey to Machu Picchu begin. A gentle rain covers the mountainside. A warm breeze sweeps through the valley below, where a bright, muddy river flows at its lowest point between mountains. Once hot and humid, the jungle surrounding you begins to cool, and the long climb to 8,000 feet of elevation is not as daunting as it once was. You cut away at the thinning trees and swinging vines until you reach the edge of the overgrowth. You trek through a narrow clearing in between the thinning vegetation. A series of switchbacks open up along the base of the mountain, and you begin your ascent. The higher you climb, the billowing trees fade to scrub, and grass laying soft beneath your feet. You follow a winding footpath carved ages ago by scarce villagers and the grazing wildlife of the Andes. Although you see none, from the route of rubble and mud carved through the highland, you know many have traveled here. From the present to the past, thousands of years of Incans have set foot before you. A civilization has risen and fallen between these mountains. A low fog settles into the valley. Although this landscape seems hidden and desolate, with mysteries behind each outcropping, every inch has been surveyed by an empire lost to time. As you trek higher, the small stream of rainwater that builds along the path flows in the opposite direction, back down where you came from. The light rain only feeds the base of the mountain where dense jungle grows, and the higher you climb, the scraggly rocks spring from the peaks. Greenery fades to scrub along the slanted mountainside, and the bright sheen of wet granite appears on the faces of the surrounding mountains. In the mud, giant paw prints and claw marks riddle the ground. They look fresh, but they begin to fade under the flowing rain. A massive boulder dons a thin fur of green and yellow moss, 
once falling from the cliffside, this giant slab of granite has found a new home, clinging to the entanglement of a small crag. You look above to see where it came from, high in the sky, the nearest peak, where in its side many cracks and rifts have formed over years of erosion. Hundreds of thousands of years passed, and by the power of light rain, just like the one you find yourself in now, has slowly chipped away at the great Andes mountain range. Many hang on to the sides, while others have fallen to the valleys below. Some have rolled all the way down and sunk into the murky river. You pass by the massive boulder and graze the moss with your fingertips. You rest against the boulder for a moment to catch your breath. The consistent incline of the switchbacks gives a slight burn in your thighs and calves, and it feels good to rest a moment. You catch your breath as the drops of rain flare from the rim of your hat. In the quiet pattering of rain, you hear the snapping of small twigs somewhere in the distance. You weren't aware of any company along the trail given the forecast, and not many others traveled to the mountains of Machu Picchu in the rainy off-season. So you turn around to see who or what is following you on the path. The scratching of bark and the lumbering of four heavy feet come from somewhere in the distance. And as you scan the edge of the jungle, a black dot emerges from the green backdrop. On all four paws, a lone Andean bear waddles out of the jungle. It's strange seeing a bear on the slanted mountainside in the jungles of Peru. In fact, it's odd seeing a bear in South America at all. Also known as a spectacle bear, this is the only bear on the entire continent and is endemic to the tropical Andes. He is nearly six feet long and weighs around 250 pounds. And the largest can weigh up to 280 pounds if the pickings are ripe. His coat is mostly black with a tinge of brown, yet streaks of light fur carve around his nose and eyes. If he were wearing a bright red hat and spoke in a friendly English accent, you would think it was Paddington the bear since he came from the jungles of Peru. But he remains silent, and if he did speak, his accent most likely wouldn't be English. He turns his head back and forth in search of food. These Andean bears have large heads compared to their bodies, which gives them the look of either a big, furry baby or a mastermind with a giant brain. He looks at you with curiosity, but he has seen many adventurers like you coming and going through the mountains over the years. He's an omnivore, but rarely has a taste for meat. To him, you're just another traveler seeking the silly city of stone on the mountaintop. He travels along the edge of the switchback trail, sniffing the air for any trace of a berry tree. His vision is blurry, and his hearing isn't great either. But luckily, his sense of smell is impeccable. He can smell the fruits of trees even from the ground. And he might even smell the sweat beneath your raincoat. Since their habitat consists of trees and mountains, the Andean bear is an incredible climber. They live solitary lives in the dense forest between the mountains. But they leave their markings and their scents on the trunks of trees so that others can find them. They love climbing trees in search of food but they can also be spotted on the sides of mountains traversing the steep Andean terrain if they're ever feeling adventurous. 
in Andean culture, many believe these bears exist as mediators between the world of the living and the dead, and by the look of their face colored with strange splotches of black and white, they look like they wear the mask of a skull. According to their lore, their claws are also believed to have medicinal properties, and unfortunately, this has diminished their numbers across the Andes as they are constantly hunted for their claws. Their pointed edges dig into the mud as he continues on his way. In the midst of light rain, nearing the hidden city of Machu Picchu, you take this mystical bear as a sign of good luck. A mediator between the world of the living and the dead. With your beating heart, you approach the bones of those who had once lived in the abandoned Incan city. And in a way, the world of the living and the dead shall meet. You watch the bear catch a scent of something between the rain and the foliage, and he fades into the overgrowth of the curly jungle. After another moment of rest beside the boulder, you head towards the granite peaks spotted with green. Further and further you trudge. Turn after turn, you follow the switchback, hoping that the city will be just after the next one. You wish a helicopter would magically appear in front of you so you could fly to the top. But you accept where you are, and you know that you're much closer to Machu Picchu with every step forward. Out across from your trail on the other side of the river, you look towards a massive wall of mountains. The spotted rock across the way is a sheer vertical face, as if Mother Nature had pulled the tectonic plate straight towards the sky. Small dimples carve out its sides where bits of rocks have fallen to the valley below. And as tricky as the switchbacks are, you're thankful there will be no rock climbing on the sidling face of a mountain. How strange, you think, to build a city within the most challenging terrain of Peru. You turn back to your path and head onwards. And as you climb, you wonder what purpose the city serves so deep in the jungle, so high in the mountains. Was it a place of refuge? A prison? A holy temple reaching towards the sun god? As you take the last switch back, you see a series of perfectly cut stone walls in the distance. They make up a small hut, and beyond the hut, the vista opens up to dozens and dozens of terraces. Out from the claustrophobic switchbacks, the Andean view breathes with a scent of fresh rain. The sight before you opens up a wide berth of low-cut grass on a slanted peak. Each terrace levels the mountainside to flat ground, like rice paddies on the sides of mountains. Each step is several feet tall. Many stand taller than you. The perfectly cut stones rest between the two peaks of Huayna Picchu and Machu Picchu. And before you venture further, you take a moment to rest as you've made the climb to the lost city of Machu Picchu. Perched on a ridge high in the Andes, the city rests quietly between the highest peaks. On one side of the city, a sheer 1,600-foot drop leads to the winding river below. The city walls, huts, and temples are built from the mountain's endless supply of stone. As you pass through the city, you notice the delicate craftsmanship of each stone, cut with precision and laid with a delicate hand. Some of the smaller rocks fit perfectly into the groove of a wall, while others weigh up to 20 tons, hauled by workers and chiseled 
by stonemasons. Some are laid and cut so perfectly, not even the sharpest blade of a knife can fit between the stones. All made and placed in a time before the wheel, mortar, and iron tools. Each carefully crafted stone forms the city's finest walls, with a slight taper towards the top. Modern archaeologists still wonder about the techniques used to build this ancient city. The precision and smoothness of each stone act as a testament to the Incan stonemasons of the time, and many believe that the hardest river rocks compacted over time were used to chisel the softer mountain stones. And the massive 20-ton blocks were transported on wooden sleds, where workers inserted poles through the sled and into the ground. They used their leverage to heave the sled forward a few feet at a time, and luckily, since their supply of stone was so close to the city, they didn't have to travel very far. Machu Picchu has nearly 600 terraces, 170 buildings and several temples, thousands of steps, 16 fountains, and a half a mile aqueduct, all built from stone. Most roofs have deteriorated and disappeared over time, but the Incan architecture stood the test of time. The stone roofs that remain mimic the peak of Huayna Picchu as an ode to the mountain from which it came, and even the temples still catch rays of the rising sun, paying homage to their sun god, Inti, decades and decades after the fall of the Incan Empire. The purpose of this city is still unknown, and many mysteries encircle the stone walls. The Incans abandoned the city in the 16th century, and the Andean jungle slowly took over. The greenery of the mountainside crept its way up the terraces and covered the gray walls of granite, and for thousands of years, it was lost to time, and even the last remaining Incans had forgotten it ever existed. In the 1400s, the Incan Empire was at the peak of its power. It was among the greatest in the New World and dominated South America beginning in 1438. A man by the name of Pachacuti, a great warrior and leader, rose to power in the early 1400s, and during his reign, the great Incan expansion began. Agriculture thrived on the mountainsides. Great construction projects began involving temples, estates, and roads. Over 14,000 miles of stone pathways were constructed during the Incan Empire, connecting several cities and points of interest across South America. The Incans quickly became known for their exceptional stonemasons, as seen by the monumental work put into the series of walls and terraces before you. They have stood for thousands of years, despite the common earthquakes of Peru and the erosion of wind and rain over centuries. Alongside their incredible stonework, they also became known for their gold and silversmiths, and much of their jewelry has survived, although none of it lies in the huts and temples of Machu Picchu. At one point, the city could have been teeming with it. Gold represented their sun god, Inti, and they became obsessed with the element, while the rest of the world began to drool over its arbitrary value. The Incans smelted it and built various trinkets and tools ranging from gauntlets, ceremonial knives, masks, clothes, and statues. Little did they know, the one thing they adored would be the same thing that contributed to their downfall. In 1532, Francisco Pizarro, 
and a Spanish army of 180 men landed on the shores of South America. They had the prospect of gold in their eyes, minds, and veins, and they would leave nothing untouched, nothing intact until they found their treasure. Peru was their destination of interest. A slight wind blew through the jungles of the Andes that brought tales of the Incan emperor, Atahualpa. The rumors told stories of maize served on golden plates and wine poured in golden chalices. There were rooms lined with gold plucked straight from the Andean mountains, all of which was ripe for the taking. Pizarro and his men would stop at nothing to find these Incans and steal their riches. After an arduous journey through the South American jungles, traveling nearly 350 miles by foot, Pizarro and his men found the Incan emperor and his men near the city of Cajamarca. They invited them to a feast which the emperor happily accepted. Later that day, the Spaniards lured the emperor and his men into a courtyard and ambushed the unsuspecting Incans. They slaughtered every last Incan except for the emperor, and they held him against his will until he offered them an irresistible ransom to spare his life. One room full of gold, and two rooms full of silver as high as a hand could reach. How could they decline that offer? And in the eyes of Pizarro, how could they stop there? If the emperor had that much gold and silver to offer, surely there would be more stashed away. The Incan emperor made good on his promise, and the Spaniards were soon showered with gold and silver. With gold and greed poisoning his heart, Pizarro wanted more. He executed the Incan emperor regardless of his honesty, and the Spaniards waged a full-scale war against the Incans. Despite the Spaniards being vastly outnumbered, they didn't fear the leagues of Incans that defended themselves. The Spanish had the technological advancement of armor and firearms, while the Incans only had clubs and bows. For all of their riches, all of their gold, silver, and stone, the Incans had no means to protect their treasure or themselves. The Spanish saw them as nothing more than low-hanging fruit waiting to be robbed and conquered. And on top of this, the Incan numbers dwindled from civil war and a smallpox epidemic brought to Peru by the Spaniards. Over the following years of a harrowing war against the Incans, the Spaniards had successfully obliterated almost every last trace of their empire. The last remaining royalty of Incan lineage fled to the jungles of the Andes. And over the years, small guerrilla attacks against the Spaniards cropped up here and there. They did their best with what little they had, but it was never enough. The Spanish rousted and killed the last line of Incan royalty, and the last of the Incan empire hung on by a thread. After the annihilation of the Incans, word of their last capital, Vilcabamba, traveled through the jungle. Somewhere deep in the Andean jungle, the last haven of the Incans remained and bloodthirsty Spaniards set off in the jungle to find it. Not even the cover of the challenging jungle terrain could stop the Spaniards, and when they came upon the city, they did what they did best. And in the darkest throes of domination, the rest is history. Tales of the capital passed on through generation after generation, and 400 years later it was the city of Vilcabamba that American explorer Hiram Bingham sought out. As the son of a missionary, he was no stranger to traveling the world. In his adult years, he became a pioneer for Latin American studies, and by the 1910s, he set out in search of the lost capital of the Incans. As he made his way through the thick jungles, the local indigenous farmers directed him in the seemingly endless train of trees, mountains, and rivers. And in search of this lost city, 
he rediscovered the long-lost citadel of Machu Picchu instead. Buried beneath the foliage taking back the land, much of its stones and walls were hidden beneath the overgrowth. Known as a cloud forest, these trees grow at an altitude between 3,000 and 8,000 feet, and Machu Picchu sits at the top. Over 400 years of unbridled growth beneath the rain and sun of the Andes, the city has been camouflaged when Bingham finally rediscovered it. It had become a city only known by the locals, and many previous travelers had passed over it throughout the years. As Bingham's team of explorers hacked away at the foliage and uncovered the city inch by inch, they discovered the pristine walls of Incan architecture, and within them rested stone tools and bronze knives. But what interested the excavators the most wasn't what lay within the city, but what lay beneath. After days and days of exploration, the team finally began their excavation of the earth beneath the city. They discovered nearly a hundred graves, and the Incans that were buried there revealed much about the city's potential purpose. After first studying the graves, they all contained the bones of women, and as scholars asked why this was the case, they dug into the cultural histories of the Incans. It is believed that there was a common practice among Incan culture where they isolated women to maintain their chastity. They were deemed the virgins of the sun, and they kept their chastity as a tribute to their sun god, Inti. And the walls of Machu Picchu might have acted as a covenant for these chosen women, selected at a young age for their beauty. These girls were imprisoned in the solitude of remote convents, and within these walls they made food, tended to fires, and wove clothing for their emperor. They remained here until the age of 17 or 18, where Incan officials made their fates a gamble. Some were sacrificed to the gods, some became imperial concubines, and others became the wives of nobility. Not much else is known about these chosen women. Still, Machu Picchu's seclusion and its a hundred burial sites containing mostly women give us a hint to what this forgotten city was possibly used for. Within the nuance of Incan culture, one driving force stands above all, and much like other ancient empires, their guidance is ruled by the sky. As the Egyptians once followed the stars, the Incans followed the sun. The infinite space above, shrouded in mystery and mythos, was filled by the projections from Earth. What dreams belabored emperors as they slept? What visions sowed the seeds of their empires? All would grow under the sun. Breaking through the mountains, the sun continued to rise, their maze continued to grow, and their empire continued to expand. And in return, the Incans sacrificed their women, smelted their gold, and built temples on the highest peaks. As you walk up the stairs of Machu Picchu, you realize your climb isn't over. Your thighs burn, your calves ache. But you know you'll fall into a deep sleep by nightfall. And you climb your way to the highest level, Passing tapered walls and empty houses, you come to a central courtyard. Here, beside the focal point of the citadel, rests one of the city's temples. Simple yet deliberate, it stands in the heart of the city. Known as the Temple of the Three Windows, its framework sits perfectly symmetrical to its surroundings. When the building was rediscovered in the early 1900s, a foot of vegetation covered its walls, and within them, explorers discovered ceremonial jars vases, and fountains. The light rain continues tumbling across the city's stonework, 
and the overcast skies cover the mountains. But on the days of sunshine, the temples of Machu Picchu pay homage to their sun god. Their peaks glisten as the morning sun rises in the east and captures the temples within its light. Here between Huayna and Machu, the wide landing accepts the sunlight. You look down the levels of terraces below, down into the green pastures at the edge of the city. Speckles of black, beige, and white cross the mountainside and meander across the small plain. They stand on long legs and scatter in random formations across the field. Their long necks reach down to graze the grass at their feet, and they pull their heads back up to keep an eye on you. These are, of course, the iconic llamas of Machu Picchu. The Incans domesticated these animals nearly 5,000 years ago, and although the Incans no longer reside in Machu Picchu, the llamas continue to be the only permanent resident of the city. You head back down the stairway to get a closer look at the animals, and as you take a few steps downwards, your first taste of descent is easy and oh so sweet. As you approach the group, the fluffier alpacas stand on their feet and some skitter away from you. But the llamas act as if you're just another traveler passing through. Some even come up to greet you. One wiry-haired llama plods up to the edge of the terrace where you stand. She looks at you with her curious eyes as she grinds cud between her teeth. Another shaggy brown llama keeps her distance and even spits at you. Nearly two dozen llamas live in Machu Picchu at any given time. Each has its own name tags, and most of them are female, much like the Incan residents from so long ago. The male llamas are incredibly territorial, and when two males meet on the same turf, a fight might break out. Machu Picchu is only about five square miles, which isn't ideal for male territory. If this city had a saloon, a male llama would kick in the door with the jingle of his spurs, tip his hat, spit a nasty glob of saliva in the spittoon, and call out to the other male. This town really ain't big enough for the two of us. So to keep local shootouts low, the population of male llamas in Machu Picchu is intentionally kept at a minimum. Despite only two dozen llamas, this is the most amount of mammals you've seen in the Andes. Aside from the bear, not many reside this high up in the mountains. Smaller insects, birds, and butterflies casually make their way through the mountains, and this elevation isn't ideal for bigger mammals. These llamas have survived high up in the mountains for so long over years of adaptation. The lower oxygen levels make it difficult for most others to breathe, but the llama lives comfortably. They have large amounts of hemoglobin which allows them to absorb more oxygen from the air, and they can live on very little food and water much like their close relative, the camel, which gives them their family name, the Camelids. The ancient Incans quickly realized how versatile and adaptable these animals were. These fluffy, easygoing Camelids became one of the few reasons the Incan Empire expanded into the highest regions of the mountains. All the llamas had to do was eat the grass and poop, and that's about it. Business as usual. As the Incans began to expand their territory up into the mountains, they brought their seeds of maize with them. Typically, the soil found in higher elevations doesn't have a sustainable amount of nutrients. Most of it is washed to the lower levels. But luckily, the Incans collected the llama's dung and used it as fertilizer. 
and the llamas were none the wiser. The Incans also used the llama's fur to weave colorful clothing and blankets. Eventually, they realized the alpacas had the softer, warmer, and more colorful fur of the bunch, but they were much more skittish and less docile compared to the llamas. Regardless, all of the camelids of the Andes sport a thick coat of wool that protects them from the constant rainfall of the Andes during the wet season. The llamas and alpacas can be seen casually grazing and meandering across the fields during a rainy day like today, without a care in the world. You look down at the llama and she stares back. Her canted eyes look at you in the hopes of getting a bit of food. The grass of the Andes is nice and all, but llama wants a bit of human food. With an empty hand, you decline, as you're not supposed to feed the wildlife no matter how cute and fuzzy they are. After a short stare down, the llama wanders back to its crew, where they spend the day chewing grass and laying in the fields upon the terrace. As you look upwards towards the city, the light rain begins to fade away. The final raindrops of a soft cloud tap at the stonework of a long-forgotten city, forgotten by its own people and forgotten by the world, yet never forgotten by the llamas who call it home, or the inevitable sun god Inti who might just peek his head. And as sure as the sun will rise, the city of Machu Picchu remains intact between the two mountain peaks where it will continue to rest for another thousand years to come. And its gray stone walls welcome a brief respite from the rain. Through the clouds, the almighty sun breaks through. The light shines first on the crested peaks of the Andes where the gray granite reflects its light and the green vegetation glows with a brighter hue. And soon, Inti sets his sights on the temple of the three windows. The structure brightens and the stones begin to dry. The sun blesses the city with warmth, and beyond the mountains a double rainbow appears beneath the clearing of clouds. The star of soul gives its blessing. If Inti would have it, the rain would rest for a bit. The llamas can dry their wool. The maize can soak in its shower and grow beneath the sun. And your long journey back to camp will be one with the warmth of the sun at your back. And each step downwards will be one so gently guided by the gravity the planet. Well, that concludes our journey to Planet Sleep for tonight. I hope you enjoyed your mystical journey to Machu Picchu. And I hope you'll return again soon for our next adventure. With that being said, I'll see you next time. And until then, sleep easy my friends.